Okay, well, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skeen. Today, I'm joined by my partner, Rich Pledger, and we're coming to you live from our new Richmond, Virginia office. Say hello to everybody, Rich. Hello, everybody. So as you know, everyone, Surety Today is offered only to in-house claims professionals, and it's designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues. And we really, really appreciate your support and ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues uh, who you think may be interested in calling in. We also ask that you like and or share our Surety Today post on LinkedIn and Twitter. If you miss a, a presentation, you can listen to a recording at multiple locations uh, on the uh, Surety Today page on our website at wcslaw.com uh, as a podcast at iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, or Podbean. Just search for uh, Surety Today. I checked uh, earlier, and we've had we've had almost 900 uh, downloads of our various uh, podcast episodes, so it's doing great. Uh, on our micro site at suretytoday.net, you can also find all this information. If you have any suggestions for future topics or improvements, please let us know. Uh, we have muted the line, as I mentioned uh, during the presentation, to avoid the background noise. We'll open it up at the end for questions. Uh, before we get started, I wanted to take a moment to introduce uh, Mr. Pledger. For those of you who do not already know him, uh, Rich has been practicing law for over 31 years. He graduated from the University of Virginia with a bachelor's degree. He, he obtained his uh, JD degree from the law school at the uh, College of William and Mary. Rich concentrates his practice in the areas of construction law, surety and fidelity law, commercial and business litigation as well. He has uh, successfully managed project defaults and claims in Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland, and the District of Columbia, as well as in other states associating with local counsel, of course, when needed. Uh, he's qualified to practice before all the state and federal trial courts uh, throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia, including uh, the bankruptcy courts and the federal court of claims. He represents contract and subcontract bond sureties and bid, payment, and performance bond claims and litigation. Uh, protection, enforcement of indemnity rights, and so on. Uh, Rich also represents sureties and insurers in other business and commercial contexts, including fidelity bond coverage issues, state matters, financial transactions, and procurement contracts. He's uh, active in the Defense Research Institute's Fidelity and Surety Law Committee. He served as vice chair for two years and chair for two years. He's also actively involved with the uh, ABA FSLC, and has had uh, various leadership roles and subcommittees over the years. He's a member of the National Bond Claim Association, Eastern Bond Claims Review, the International Association of Defense Council, and the uh, Virginia Bar Association Construction and Public Contract Law Section. So we're, uh, we're, we're very delighted to have Rich and Tom Moran and um, Justin Thatch here with us at, at Wright Constable, and uh, it's, it's, really, um, it's really great to have someone of Rich's stature. Wow. So you, can, you can pay me after we're done here, Rich. <laughs> so without further ado, let's get started. The title of our presentation today is the surety and delay claims. So I'll kick us off with, you know, a, a general discussion about, about delay claims. So delay claims, of course, are claims for damages caused by alleged delay on a project. Delays are typically measured against the approved project schedule, but Sometimes they can be based on failure to meet project milestones or other project-specific deadlines. Delays can take many forms depending on who's asserting the claim. From owner obligees, especially those governmental owners, 
Delay claims most often take the form of liquidated damages, and Rich will talk about that type of delay damage later. In some cases, owner obligees may seek delay-related damages associated with the project uh, not being available on time, including things like lost profits from the project not operating, extended loan carrying costs, damages to third parties like lessees who can't move into the project on time. Some owners have taken uh, recently to asserting both liquidated damage claims and claims for actual damages associated with delays. General contractors might assert claims for extended overhead, supervision, extended project conditions, lost profit, lost opportunities like, you know, I couldn't undertake this job because I was stuck on the, on the delay job, uh, flow down damages assessed by the owner for delays or pass through of delay claims from other subs and suppliers who were uh, impacted by the delay, extended permit costs, etc. Delay claims coming from subcontractors will have m many of the same damage categories as the general contractor and can include items such as extended storage costs for materials, increased prices for goods and materials that incurred uh, during the delay period, uh, unique project circumstances and conditions can give rise to any number and types and amounts of damage of delay damages. So the question for today is, is, is the surety responsible for the delay claims, and if so, to what extent? So historically, delay damages were not recoverable on a Miller Act payment bond. In the 1970s and the 80s, some courts began to allow delay claims. In these early cases, the courts reasoned that allowing delay damages furthered the purpose of the Miller Act by putting subs uh, on government projects on equal footing with subcontractors on private projects, and, and also that delay damages compensated these subs for the actual value of the materials and services that they uh, furnished. In more recent years, other courts have likewise followed suit and allowed claims for delays, at least to the extent of increased out-of-pocket costs for labor and materials incurred due to delays, finding that such claims are quote-unquote, sums justly due under the Miller Act. Still, courts remain divided on the question of whether delay damages constitute amounts due for labor or material. The disagreement appears to stem in part from differences regarding the manner in which the phrase labor and material should be construed. Some courts take a strict approach and find that such, such terms um, you know, do not include delay damages, and others take a liberal approach and find that they do. Much of the apparent disagreement seems to be attributable to the fact that the cases deal with different kinds of delay damages, and many of the opinions fail to explain the basis for concluding that the particular uh, delay damages at issue are or, or not uh, are or, or not recoverable. And so that, that that makes a mess out of the case law when the courts are, are messy with how they're or what they're dealing with in terms of the damages. As one court noted, Logically, the language of the Miller Act suggests that when delays increase the cost directly incurred in furnishing labor or materials in the prosecution of the work, the increased cost should be recoverable. Conversely, recovery for delay-related losses and expenses that are not directly reflected in the cost of the labor or material furnished is more appropriately the subject of an action for breach of contract and not a claim against the bond. So, Rich will talk about these issues of, you know, the Miller Act and what, what delays are covered and all of that when, in, in a moment. Uh, but one of the things you've got to look at, aside from whether the jurisdiction that you're in is, is going to allow delay claims or not on a, on a particular bond, you've got to look at the bond itself and see what the bond says. 
some courts, such as the uh, Florida Supreme Court in the well-known case of American Home Insurance Company versus Larkin General Hospital, uh, have held that where the performance bond contains no provision for damages for delay, the surety cannot be held liable for such damages. Holdings like this arise from the general rule that a surety's liability is defined by its bond, and such liability should not be expanded or enlarged. Thus, the language of the bond must be evaluated to determine if the bond itself provides for recovery uh, of or limitation on a claimant's ability to assert a claim for delayed damages. The standard Miller Act bond form, of course, doesn't mention delays. Some of the manuscript bonds for, from larger general contractors have started to include damages for delays. Moreover, the AIA A312 2010 bond form, uh, performance bond, expressly allows recovery for delay costs and delay damages uh, as a result of the principal's default or the surety's delayed completion under a takeover agreement. While the bond form may not expressly mention delay damages, if the bond incorporates the underlying contract by reference, the terms of the underlying contract may incorporate exposure for delay damages into the bond. So let's take a look at this issue. Most, most courts hold that a bond is a contract and therefore a bond is subject to general law of contracts. As such, many courts apply the rule of incorporation by reference when interpreting the scope of a bond. In Florida, for example, it's a generally accepted rule of contract law that where a writing expressly refers to the and sufficiently describes another document, that other document or so much uh, of it as is referred to is to be interpreted as part of the writing. In applying this rule, the Florida courts have held that where a provision for liquidated delay damages is clearly delineated in the underlying contract and incorporated by reference into the bond, the surety is liable for the delay damage even though the terms of the bond do not expressly require it. In some states, such as Maryland, the rule of incorporation by reference is more limited and does not operate to import the entire terms of the other document into the bond. So the takeaway is that in evaluating a bond to determine if delay damages are within the scope of the bond, you must evaluate the issue of incorporation by reference and the applicable jurisdiction's treatment of that uh, incorporation by reference rule. Okay, Rich? All right, we're turning now to uh, questions coming under the Miller Act and, and non-Miller Act. Uh, it addresses the question whether a surety is liable under its payment bond for delay damages claimed by a subcontractor, and if so, to what extent? I think the first inclination for surety claims representatives and practitioners is to say no, the bond does not cover delay damages. That response may be correct sometimes. Unfortunately, the answer to the question is dependent upon the type of bond at issue, Miller Act or Little Miller Act bond or a common law private bond. Under the Miller Act, although it's tempting to look and apply the law of the state in which a federal project is situated to determine whether delay damages are recoverable under a payment bond, efforts to do so generally fall on deaf ears. Um, in, the, uh, uh, in a Pennsylvania case, uh, Pioneer Construction Co. versus Pride Enterprises, the court pointed out that the surety in that case, Great American, had an argument which under Pennsylvania law, delay damages are not recoverable against sureties unless the bond expressly states that delay damages are covered. That was based on an unsound premise because the bonded issue was a contract payment bond issued in accordance with the Miller Act. The court observed that nearly 30 years ago, the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit declared that it is well settled federal law governs the rights and obligations of a Miller Act surety. In essence, that means that regardless of the state or territory where the project is located, federal law, not state law, will apply to the surety's liability under a contract payment bond. 
Under federal law, the Miller Act represents a congressional effort to protect persons supplying labor and material for the construction of federal buildings in lieu of the protection they might receive under state statutes with respect to the construction of non-federal buildings. And as the U.S. Supreme Court has observed, the Miller Act is highly remedial in nature and must be construed to effectuate Congress's intent. Uh, we, that also gets to the concept of uh, sums justly due. The Miller Act provides that a contract payment bond must be furnished with the surety for protection of all persons supplying labor material and carrying out the work provided for in the contract. That's uh, under Section 3131B2 of Title 40. That's it. And under 40 U.S.C. 3133B1, every person that has furnished labor material and carrying out work provided for in the contract for which a payment bond is furnished that has not been paid in full within 90 days after the day on which the person did or performed the last of the labor or furnished or supplied the material for which claim is made may bring a civil action on the payment bond. That's all that was required. It's the passage of time before suit can be filed. So the courts will often look at whether or not any contractual provisions or bond provisions or arguments that the surety may raise tries to limit what the Miller Act authorizes. Given the remedial, action, uh, remedial nature of the Miller Act and the fact that it was enacted to protect persons who supply labor and material and prosecution of the work, must, most courts hold that as long as the subcontractor's delay claim falls within the language of the Miller Act, then a claim for increased labor and material costs are recoverable. And as uh, Mike noted, that's a, somewhat of a deviation from earlier case law. There's an interesting case. Um, I think it's well written, pretty well reasoned. I'm not necessarily a fan of it. It's out of the Ninth Circuit. It's the May, uh, May or May Steel Service Inc. v. Blake Construction case. And that's an interesting case. It involved multiple types of claims. Um, the Navy was the obligee. Blake uh, was the general contractor with Aetna as its uh, uh, contract bond surety. And then uh, May Steel uh, was a subcontractor, and there was a company called Molinix that was also a subcontractor. My Steel had a commercial union as its subcontract bond surety. And then My Steel ended up subbing out a, a large portion of its work to Molinix, and it became a mess. Uh, Molinix, who ultimately wasn't paid, sued Mile Steel for breach of contract of a framework subcontract, um, and it was seeking uh, not only its unpaid balance of subcontract uh, funds, but another one million and some change and delay damages. Uh, that was the increase in labor and materials that um, it incurred because my steel didn't uh, perform. And then it had a separate subcontract with Blake and alleged that my steel interfered, cautiously interfered, with its decking contract and sought another 758,000 in delay damages. Um, and in that, they uh, surety, I mean, Molinek tried to collect from both sureties. Uh, and the district court ruled that um, uh, neither were liable, Molinek's appeal. Now, in that case, the court observed that the increased out-of-pocket costs caused by construction delays fall within the intended coverage of the Miller Act. This is the 1992 case. Thus, a subcontractor may recover those costs from a Miller Act surety. 
However, it also held that a subcontractor may not recover from the surety any lost profits caused by the delay because a claim for profits does not act involve actual outlay, e.g. labor and material, and thus falls outside the letter and the spirit of the Miller Act. Uh, in addition, my steel rule that Miller Act does not limit a subcontractor's recovery to situations where the general contractor is at fault for the delay. The subcontractor still provided labor material, and as long as the subcontractor was not itself responsible for the delay, it may recover under the payment bond regardless of who was at fault. The general contractor, after all, has the right to go pursue the government for additional labor and material costs. Now, I'm sad to say that I think Virginia is beginning to follow suit on this. There was a case recently, 2018, United States on behalf of Kitchens to Go versus John Grimberg. There, uh, the issue was whether a no damages for delay clause in a subcontract, which provided that the general contractor shall not be liable for delays beyond its control and that the subcontractor would be entitled only to reimbursement for damages for delay actually recovered from the, from the owner, was unenforceable. Judge Ellis, who uh, I think is a very learned judge, observed that in Miller Act cases, courts must look beyond the principle's contractual liability to the Miller Act itself in defining the limits of coextensive liability between the surety and its principle. As well-settled law makes clear, the Miller Act trumps conflicting suretyship principles such that a surety can only enforce contract terms to limit its Miller Act liability if those terms are consistent with the act. And I think that you'll find that Virginia will be following uh, the My Steel case and a number of other courts. Uh, I can't say that a majority of the circuits yet have uh, uh, reached that position, but I think it's soon to come. Mike? Okay. That's a, a sad day then when that, when that day comes. So last, uh, uh, next thing I want to talk about rather just really briefly uh, is lost profits and rich mentioned it in the My Steel case. In, in, in many instances, the party asserting a delay claim will include as an element of its uh, alleged damages a claim for lost profits. The courts are nearly unanimous that lost profits are not recoverable against the surety bond. The 5th, 6th, D.C. Circuit, 9th, 8th, and 11th Circuits all hold that the Miller Act does not contemplate lost profits. The 8th Circuit stated the Miller Act was not meant to replace subcontractor state law contract remedies, which allow for recovery of lost profits. Rather, it provides subcontractors an additional remedy to recover costs expended in furnishing labor material and prosecution of the work provided for in a public construction contract. A claim for profit does not involve actual outlay and thus falls outside both the letter and the spirit of the Miller Act. Now, the, the lone circuit that, that I found that um, that seems to allow lost profits is the Tenth Circuit, and there's uh, there's several cases where they have uh, where they have stuck to that position, and then there's district courts in, within that circuit that have also followed that position. But for the most part, uh, it's pretty clear that if, if a party is seeking lost damages, they're going to have an uphill road um, under the Miller Act, at least. So, Rich, I'll turn it over to you. All right. Um, the, the last segment I spoke on really related mostly to the Miller Act, as you could tell. I do want to uh, mention that non-Miller Act cases uh, also are implicated, so I deviate uh, a tad bit from where I was. The non-Miller Act cases also include little Miller Act cases, 
and then private common law bonds. And of course, a private common law bond may be a subcontract bond on a federal project. I think it's fair to say that most states will say, uh, look through the Miller Act when it comes to analyzing the rights and remedies available under the Little Miller Act. I know that Virginia routinely does so. So to the extent that uh, we have a Little Miller Act claim on a contract payment bond, I suspect that we'll be following the law that uh, the Miller Act does that we just spoke with. When it comes down to the private common law bonds, and this, this is much beyond uh, what we can talk about in a reasonable period of time, uh, you have to look at each and every bond form, contractual uh, uh, obligation, and determine the, you know, what is incorporated, how it's incorporated, because you're not being governed in that instance by the same concepts as the uh, Miller Act or the Little Miller Act. Now, the next segment that uh, Mike uh, was turning to was the principal at fault, owner at fault. And I found that uh, many of the cases that I referred to in the last segment also discusses this. There have been a number of cases which have held that a subcontractor is not entitled to recover from a surety costs incurred due to delays growing out of the acts or omissions of others. Now, some of these are early cases, but as we go along, uh, one court in particular, the My Steel case, observed that they provide no explanation for this assertion and that in essence, at least under the Miller Act, um, uh, it's, it's not uh, justifiable. May Seal serve as held that the increased out-of-pocket costs caused by delays which were unanticipated at the time the subcontract was made and which were caused by the government can be recovered from the Miller Act surety. And there are a number of jurisdictions that concur with that position. The Fifth Circuit uh, in the TMS Mechanical Contractors case, the Eleventh Circuit in a Pertune Construction Company case, uh, the District of Columbia Circuit in the uh, Mariana versus Peraki Construction. Uh, in those cases, the plaintiff um, uh, was able to recover the out-of-pocket cost of delays. Plaintiff, the my court also indicated that uh, plaintiff is entitled to recover under the bond all labor and material costs attributable to those delays, regardless of who they were, uh, who was responsible for them, other than the subcontractor him or herself. Um, one of the reasons, uh, and as explained by the Eighth Circuit in the Biggs case, the Miller Act favors allowing full recovery from a general contractor regardless of fault because general contractors have the privity of contract with the government and can thus recover delay damages directly from the government. Um, of course, that raises an interesting question, and that is whether or not the general contractor exercised its rights under the contract in a timely fashion and whether the surety is going to be the benefit of that. Uh, it raises some troubling questions. Um, Mike? Okay. Uh, let's spend a few minutes then talking about defenses. So you've got your delay claim and it, it may in the jurisdiction you're in apply and, and be within the scope of your bond. So if, if a Delay claim is, is asserted, 
what are these defenses that can be raised? Of course, the surety will be able to assert the defense of its principle to such claims. For example, if the contract has a waiver of consequential damages, depending on the specific terms of that waiver, the surety may be able to eliminate or reduce some of the delayed damages. The surety will also be able to assert the typical surety defenses, you know, improper claim and insufficient proof, failure to satisfy conditions precedent, discharge due to impairment of rights or overpayment, et cetera. If these defenses apply, then the, the delay claim may be avoided by avoiding liability under the bond completely. Uh, but there are also several defenses that are unique to delay claims. Let's take a quick look at those. The first is excusable delay. So damages for delay cannot be assessed if the alleged delays were excusable. An example of excusable delay could be bad weather or strikes, things like that. Thus, where the a contractor may have been 20 days late in completing a project, if there were 20 days of bad weather such that the work could not be performed, then such delay would be excusable and not compensatory. Excusable delay can also arise when the delay arises from unforeseeable causes beyond the control and without the fault or negligence of the contractor. Delays caused by unknown underground conditions would typically be excusable delays, for example. Another defense is concurrent delay. A concurrent delay occurs when two or more parties approximately contribute to the delay on the project. For example, a concurrent delay exists where the conduct of the owner and the contractor approximately cause that delay. If both, if both parties are responsible for delays, neither is entitled to damages from the other. Two or more delays may be considered concurrent because they occur at the same time or because they occur at different times but produce a common effect. Another uh, defense would be that the delay is not on the critical path. So for a delay to be compensable, it generally must be a material delay that impacted the project overall. If the delay cause was not, um, not to activity on the critical path, then such delay is generally not material or compensable. Another defense is failure to satisfy the burden. You know, as, as establishing or asserting a delay claim is complicated. It requires a lot of facts, expert testimony, analysis of the schedule, computation of damages, et cetera. So the party asserting that claim is going to have the burden, and if they don't meet that burden, then that claim is denied. Uh, another um, defense is that the claimant caused the delay. So if the claimant that's asserting this delay claim was the cause of it or even a concurrent cause, as I mentioned a minute ago, then there's no recovery for delay. Substantial completion can also be a defense, particularly in the liquidated damage uh, arena. Lien release and waiver forms is something that, um, that can be asserted as a defense if, uh, as the project was going on, progress payments are being made and, and the, the, the claimant was signing lien and release waiver forms. Sometimes those are very broad and will waive, uh, waive or release uh, claims, including delay claims. So as uh, Rich mentioned, one of the other types of defenses that could be asserted is a no damage for delay clause in the underlying contract. And of course, that's a typical clause where, where basically a, a GC is saying to a sub, you know, you're not going to be able to recover damages uh, from me unless I get paid by the owner. The most you can get is, is uh, you know, is a time extension. And, and courts have, um, have, have split on this as to whether uh, those are enforceable or not. Typically, they're enforceable as between the GC and the, and the sub, but as between the surety and the sub, the courts are, are, are not uh, in agreement on that. Some will allow, some won't. Some look at it as, a, as an impermissible waiver under the Miller Act. Uh, others look at it as, as being, a, 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 time, as being a, a measure of recovery and not a timing issue, and therefore it should be 
uh, enforceable. And so you just have to check the jurisdiction that you're in to find out whether that can be a defense for you or not. Rich, you got uh, about two minutes left. I got two minutes to talk about the grand scheme and, and law surrounding liquidated damages. So it's going to be a very quick covery. Um, uh, of course, the perform purpose of a performance bond is to guarantee the completion of a contract upon default by the contractor. Ordinarily, a performance bond only ensures the completion of the contract. The surety agrees to complete the construction or to pay the obligee the reasonable costs. Now, although a reasonable, um, although a surety's liability is ex coextensive with that of its principal, the surety's liability for damages is limited by the terms of the bond, or so says uh, a Supreme Court of Florida. They found that the language in the performance bond, construed together with the purpose of the bond, clearly explains that the performance bond merely guaranteed the completion of the construction contract and nothing more. Well, that's great, but it's, uh, I think, perceived to be overly simplistic by a lot of courts. There's a case in Virginia uh, that basically comes down to, uh, and I won't get into all the details, but it's a 2010 case out of the Eastern District of Virginia, and it's, uh, um, it's here we are. It's called, I'll get it in one sec, Comstock Potomac Yard versus Balfour Realty. And in this particular case, the question was whether or not LD damages could be um, enforced um, in, in, the, in this particular case. One of the um, issues was there was, and it sort of mirrors the case I have right now, uh, the obligee had a contract which included the um, general contract, which included liquidated damages at X number of dollars a day, and it was rather substantial. And then they also turned around and tried to claim a bunch of other damages, including uh, what would some of us would characterize as um, uh, damages that should be included in the LDs. Um, they, in essence, were claiming that they constituted double recovery, and when taken in conjunction with the liquidated damages discussed in the, in the opinion, uh, determining dom multiple damage awards constitute impermissible do uh, double recovery, and the trial court will then consider the nature of the claims involved, the duties imposed, and the er injuries sustained. And it didn't come out too well in this case for uh, the uh, general contractor. In the case I have right now, I've got a similar case in which I've got a public entity which uh, uh, failed to terminate the principal for approximately a year after the work was supposed to be done. And now what it wants is us to complete the entire project by takeover, which we're going to do a tender, uh, and that was a fight. But they also want $800 a day uh, since uh, sometime in October, and then they called uh, their calculation of other damages, delay damages for additional um, AE work and project management. And we're in the middle of thrashing through that to determine whether or not that is double recovery and, uh, and slash or just a penalty on top of everything else. So I would love to get into more of it, uh, Mike, but you cut me off. <laughs> yeah, sorry. We we uh, we we try to try to stick to the time. Sometimes we can, sometimes we can. Okay. So before I open up the line for any questions, I want to let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be Monday, October 14th, 
uh, obviously at 1230. Upcoming events, the, the Philadelphia Surety Claims Lunch Meeting, September 11th. We're having a uh, panel discussion with uh, all the surety claim managers in the Philly area, including Travelers, Chubb, AIG, Arch, et cetera. It's always a great uh, program when you get to hear from, the, from those folks about what the issues are currently that they're facing. Uh, Chicago Surety Claims is September 12th. And then the, the Northeast Surety Fidelity Claims Conference is on September 18th through the 20th at the Ocean, which is formerly the Revel in Atlantic City, New Jersey. We are co-sponsors of the Northeast, and Rich and I, along with the rest of the WCNS uh, Surety Fidelity Law Group, will be there. We hope to see everybody there. Uh, and then, of course, national bond claims will be held uh, in Georgia in October 9th through the 11th. So thanks so much again, everybody, for joining us today. Look forward to speaking with everybody next month. Now I'm going to unmute the lines. Conference is oh. now in talk mode. Okay, everybody, the lines are open. Are there any questions? Uh, this is Kim Moore calling or talking. Um, quick question in reference to the LDs being assessed against, I guess, the contract balance when you have a performance bond that the owner, public owner, is trying to uh, have you complete. How? What's your success been in? Um, under the FAR, they're not supposed to assess LDs unless it's not supposed to be punitive or they're actually supposed to have incurred the costs. So that daily $800 rate, what's your success in um, saying, well, they didn't even incur this cost, I guess. And then they usually say, well, we had admin costs, and I can't imagine that they have $800 a day in admin costs. Um, is there any case law that you've come across or What's the success rate in fighting this? I, uh, most of the time when, we're, when we've dealt with the federal government, we've been able to, to negotiate a time extension, which obviates the liquidated damages. And they're typically, you know, they're willing to do that at, the, at that stage when the surety is talking about whether it's going to take over or what, or what it's going to do. And, and so I haven't had to really fight the issue uh, in, the, in the federal cases I've had. Rich? Um, Litigating the issue, I have had the ex same experience as, as Mike, and as Walt is aware, we've had some issues with the federal government, but in those cases, we were able to do the same thing and really negotiate away some of the LDs. Um, the case I have right now is a uh, county in Virginia, and it's a little frustrating because the lawyer that's representing the county, who happens to be the county attorney, really doesn't understand construction law and absolutely refused to do a takeover, I mean, a tender agreement saying that we had to comply with the public utilities, I'm, I'm sorry, the Public Procurement Act, which I uh, fundamentally disagree with. But my overall experience, we'll find out in this case soon, but my overall experience has been we've been able to negotiate away the, the, um, the LD claim um, this one, the last conversation, which was last Friday, uh, they stated in with, without any qualification that we are not giving up our LDs or our other expenses. Um, so we're now having to crank up the research, and unfortunately I found that one case that I referred to uh, involving Balfour. Uh, and candidly, we may end up having to just 
do a tender and then reserve the right on LDs and file a deck action. And um, but I haven't had to litigate the LDs question. Um, we 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 did a uh, we did a surety today presentation dedicated just to liquidated dam damages, and I'm trying to find it now. But it, it was you know last year or, or I think last year. And so you can take a look at that and see if, if there's anything in there that, that might help you. There's a number of defenses that we talk about that you can assert uh, if you're fighting over the LDs. The FAR says that you have to proclaim your LDs almost almost uh, when you do the default. So like their problem was the guy didn't get declared in default for a year and then they added them. But my case was they, they said default and then like they tried to add on mute, right? I don't know. I don't think you are on mute. So go ahead, Dan. I didn't hear all that. Any other any other questions? All right, everybody. Again, thank you for calling in, and uh, and hope to speak to you next week.